Oh, that's good, guys. I'll tell you, I always enjoy when you guys play. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles, we're back again, again, Proverbs chapter 3. And today we're going to look at another great uh, and... Uh, and vital yet relatively unknown principle out of Proverbs chapter 3. And we're going to look at our next set of paragraph marks here. I want to talk to you today, I think probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of the Bible, and probably one of the most unknown, and that is the concept of God's chastisement in our lives and God dealing with us as His sons. Now, last week, I, I gave you a verse, if you remember, it was in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and it said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And uh, I told you back then that that's the first thing you need to learn uh, when you become a Christian. Uh, it's the first thing, a concept that you have to get down, that God will, as your father, correct you, and if need be, he'll chastise you. The first thing you have to learn, and it was a standard thing hundreds of years ago, not hundreds of years ago, but a hundred so years ago, it was a standard thing that, that people knew there was a vast difference between the world and being a Christian. Today we don't have that standard. And you need to understand, the first thing uh, you need to understand is the fact that as a Christian, there's limits to what we can do. There's boundaries that we have to uh, put into our lives. I saw... I saw a sign the other day when I was in Ohio driving uh, over to my sister-in-law's house. It says, it was at a pizza shop, and it said, you can find a cheaper pizza, but then you got to eat it. And I thought to myself, boy, how true that is, because you can find an easier way in life. You can find a life without principles, an easy life to do what you want to do, but at some point you got to eat it. <laughs> and I thought as I saw that, boy, there's a great... There's a great acronym of what, it, what life is like. Now, within the Bible, you're going to find, and I told you that I want to kind of give you Proverbs so when we're done with it, we squeeze everything out of it. But in the Bible, when we start to talk about chastisement, there's four different aspects to God's chastisement. And I want you to get this down this morning so you'll know it. it it'll be very helpful to you in your overall understanding of the Bible. But you remember in its lowest common denominator, however we look at it, whatever one of these four we examine, we know that uh, God's chastisement or God's correction will be for only two reasons that we've looked at it the last couple of weeks. One, leaning on your own understanding instead of God's understanding. And two, being wise in your own eyes. These two areas fundamentally will lead us into some hard times with the Lord and and lead it. And I want you to know that there's two kinds of chastisement, or two kinds of, two aspects to God's chastisement, I should say. The first one the Bible talks about is correction. Now, that's a mild form. And uh, uh, correction is a milder form where you just simply maybe rebuke somebody or you say, don't do that. Uh, but there's a stronger form, and that would be the chastisement. And that could be corporal punishment, you know, where you, you, you have to get, uh, we in a Christian world years ago, we used to talk about God taking us to the woodshed. And that's because years ago when you did wrong, your dad took you to the woodshed and, 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 and shed some wood <laughs> along with some skin. But, 
But now our passage today was going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and we'll get there in just, in just a minute. And it's dealing with God's chastisement, uh, which is defined in the passage uh, in two aspects, as I said. There's a correction, which is a milder form, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then there's a chastisement that's a stronger form, and we'll talk about that. But I want to go through these, uh, these four concepts so you basically understand them. Now, the first form of chastisement that we'll look at will be in the concept of God dealing with the nation of Israel as, as God's son. This will be the doctrinal application, which we know that that is Israel uh, in, in, in the book of Proverbs in the first seven chapters. You're going to find that uh, in Exodus chapter 4, the nation of Israel is called God's son. And uh, when you really want to study the nation of Israel, uh, you could kind of look at it like this. The book of Genesis was, is like the formulation of Israel. It would be a lot like the baby in a mother's womb uh, before it's born. You know, and then their time in Egypt would be the pain. And there was a tremendous amount of pain that they went through in Egypt. But the birth of the nation of Israel undoubtedly is Exodus chapter 12. It's such an important part in the Bible that it changed so many things. For God, God looked at the nation of Israel. He changed the whole accounting of the beginning of the year around Exodus chapter 12. It was such an important aspect that for the rest of their life, the nation of Israel as a nation looks back to this and celebrates this as their Passover. It was very important because it represented the birth of the nation of Israel, the coming out of Egypt. Then we find, as God's son corporately, in a doctrinal sense, we find a process of growth of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, uh, they're kind of a ragtag group. By the time they get into the land, in the book of Joshua, they form themselves up. By the time we get into 1 Samuel, they're ready for their king, the monarchy, to take over. So we see there's a growth process to them uh, as God's son. But then we see the, a, a, a problem come in. We see, we've been talking about this many, many times, we see the evil man and the strange woman. And they begin to do their work and uh, take apart uh, the nation of Israel. And again, two fundamental problems that Israel has. And we know now because we've seen it. The two fundamental problems that Israel has, and you're going to see a little bit later, the two fundamental problems that we all have that leads to God's chastisement will be leaning on your own understanding and being wise in your own eyes. And that's what Israel did. And in 606 B.C., uh, they go into captivity. And from that point on, they go completely into apostasy toward God and His Word. When we come to the first uh, coming of Christ, you're going to find that Israel is much like what we have today. Israel wanted God, but Israel despised the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted God in the concept, but they despised His Son as the Lord Jesus, and that was their problem. We see at the first coming of Christ, when they're faced with Christ, what to do with Him, God's Son now, they make two great statements that I think are probably two of the most terrible statements that any nation ever made anywhere in history. And as a nation, they're standing there and they're faced with, with Jesus and what they're going to do with him. And when asked by Pilate what they were going to do, should I crucify your king? They cry back, we have no king but Caesar. 
And then they cry out, let his blood be upon us and our people. Now, I don't completely know what heaven is like up there right now. Uh, you know, eye hath not seen, ear hath, I mean, it's a, I can get some of it, but I guarantee you one thing. God's paying attention to what's going on down here. And I don't know if he has a, an official recorder or he just keeps it in his mind, but when Israel makes statements like that, God says, write that down. And you know for the next 2,000 years, God held them accountable with those two statements? His blood be upon us and our people. We have no king but Caesar. And for the next 2,000 years, they experienced God's correction in their life. Wow. Man, when you go back in history and look what God did to the Jews uh, because of those two statements and their attitude toward God, some of the things that happened to them, and then we look at that as God's correction. Boy, what the... what what. What's the chastisement be like? But of course, the ultimate chastisement will be the tribulation period. And the tribulation period, the Bible tells us, will be unlike any other time in the history of the world. Nothing that the Jews have went through, and they have went through some things, brother. Treblinka, Auschwitz, World War II, World War, the displacement at before World War I, the displacement all down through history by the Roman Catholic Church and being kicked out and tortured and, and, and being maligned by them. All correction, none of that, put it all together, is going to compare to when they go through the Great Tribulation period. And out of that time, which the Bible calls Jacob's time of trouble, it's called Daniel's 70th week, or sometimes you find it the time of trouble. They're going to get right with God. But they're so stubborn today. They're so hard-headed today and hard-hearted today that it actually takes something of that magnitude to get them right with God. And you know what? And we'll talk about some of the parallels a little bit later on. But in that concept, they're not much unlike a lot of God's people that I meet today. What it has to take in our lives, what it has to take with them. And again, it goes back to uh, when they lean to their own understanding and they become wise in their own eyes, I told you last time we were together, that produces six things. It produces pride. It produces stubbornness. It produces an arrogance. It produces a self-centeredness, a self-serving attitude, and certainly a self-righteous attitude. Well, the second aspect of God's chastisement will be on the Gentile nations that, that uh, one, go against the nation of Israel, or had God's word at one point and then, and then rejected God's word and we see uh, the hand of God's judgment on them uh, as, we, as we, if you look around the world today. You know, most people don't think outside their own little world. Most of God's people have no knowledge of what goes on in the world around them. All they know is what's in their little cubicle. They certainly have no understanding of what has went on down through history with nations. And I think that you can't understand where God is going unless you understand where God has been. And when you look at, 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 at Europe, you know, Europe was, is an incredible example of, of what we're going to talk about as far as nations. Most people don't even understand. You go to, you go to you know, the Europe today, it's an apostate, absolutely amoral society, no matter what country you go in. There's no God, there's no Bible, there's no morality, there's no nothing. But yet most people look at that and they don't understand that there was a time. There was a time when three-quarters of Europe, if not more than that, was the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time when the country of Czechoslovakia, who is, you know, was over to the communists and now it's a mess here and a mess there. There was a time when almost everybody in that country was a believer. 
There was a time when almost everybody in, in, in Germany, everybody in, in France, uh, they, they were, the, the gospel was everywhere. When the Reformation took place in 15, the 1500s, it spread and we saw the Protestant churches, the Lutheran church, were fundamentally, basically, uh, a Bible-believing and, and, and teaching salvation. That's why Martin Luther left it. The, the Presbyterian church was the same way. But 200 years after, after all of that happened, they're, they're dead. And today, you see God taking his hand off of Europe. And I want to tell you something, folks. The worst thing that can happen to a nation, the worst thing that can happen to a nation is for God to take his hand off that nation. And that's what happened in Europe. You saw it with England. England was a, was a great nation. It was England who, and you know, the study of England, English history is always, it's a very complicated thing, but it's always fascinated me. And, uh, you know, when you go through history back there, and you know, you see Henry VIII, who's back there in the uh, beginning of the 1500s. Henry VIII was a scoundrel. And, you know, he's married to, he's married to uh, Anne Boleyn, but he wants, to, he wants to dump her, and he wants to marry, uh, a, or, excuse, he's married to Catherine of Spain, but he wants to dump her and, be, and marry Anne Boleyn. And, of course, uh, in that day, only the Pope could give a decree for divorce. So Henry VIII called up his buddy, the Pope, who he'd done a lot of favors for, Wanted him, to, wanted him to work a deal where he could dump Catherine and marry this other chick. And, of course, the Pope wasn't going to do it because he's in bed with Philip of Spain, and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And so he says, I can't do that. Well, Henry VIII then at that point, he, uh, he decided that he didn't have to listen to the Pope, and he started his own church. We call it the Church of England or the Anglican Church, or sometimes in America it's called the Episcopalian Church. How would you like to be a member of a church that got started because the guy who started it wanted to marry somebody else's, marry somebody else and dump his wife, and that's how the church started? People don't know those things. You got those aliens and those aliens, yeah. You got those Anglicans and those Episcopalians, and you got the Church of England that walk around in their pomp and circumstance like they really mean something. You know what they mean? They mean that Henry VIII wanted to dump one woman for another woman, so the only way he could do it was to start his own church. Have a nice day. They don't know that. So you see that he, out of, out of, out of, out of uh, Catherine of Spain, Henry VIII has Mary, a daughter. She becomes the most wicked, wicked queen that England ever has. She becomes Bloody Mary. And Boleyn, he has another child, and she's Elizabeth. And when Mary's on the throne, she tries to bring the Roman Catholic Church, and she severely persecutes all the Bible believers in, in, in England. And when she gets off the throne, Elizabeth comes in. You know what Elizabeth does? She sets the road and sets the pavement for James I out of Scotland, who becomes uh, our King James, from which our Bible comes. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. In 1588, when Elizabeth was on the throne, the Roman Catholic Church was coming back uh, up through Spain uh, to take her back in. And, and, and the greatest Spanish armada, the greatest armada or navy that the world had ever seen, Spain had. England didn't have a navy. And so Spain starts out to come up to take England back and make it a Roman Catholic Church state. And England is in fear, but England had a God and England had a book. Amen. And right in the middle of the English Channel as they were coming to take a defenseless nation, God brought up the worst typhoon they ever saw in history and sank the Spanish armada just like that. Amen. They had a book. They had a book. The Bible says in Psalms 9, 17, that the wicked shall be cast into hell and all the nations that forget God. It's the way it works. It's the way it works. 
England dumped the Word of God. By 1900, she's an apostate. She has the land back. She wants to give it back to the Jew, but the parliament says no, and she dumps, uh, she dumps the Jew, and she dumps the Word of God around the same period of time, and today, by the end of World War II, most people don't even know this, God used World War II to judge England. By the time she was done, she was bankrupt. Her coffers were empty. She spent every dime defending herself against Nazism, and she's a seventh-rate power today, never got back. Spain was one time the great, greatest empire on the world. It doesn't even rate on the listings today. When you mess with God in that book, brother, as a nation, there's a price to pay. America's an incredible story. You know, I've always looked at the parallels, and I've always looked at this, the parallels between the nation of Israel and America. And, you know, both start with with God and the Word of God. It's an incredible analogy. Both Both nations have the blessings of God in their countries and the divine hand of God on them. Had you ever seen this? The nation of Israel starts because the people were persecuted in Egypt. There's your evil man. And they become a nation by coming out of Egypt. America, on the other hand, is persecuted in Europe by the Roman Catholic Church, the strange woman. She becomes a nation by God bringing her out of Europe and bringing her to America. I mean, it's an incredible parallel. Israel has prophets. We study them all the time. We talk about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Isaiah. America had preachers. Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Mordecai Ham, D.L. Moody. And both the prophets and the preachers do one thing for that nation, for both nations. They take God's side against sin. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. In both cases, the word of God was built into their foundation of their nations. A Moses and the elders had the Ten Commandments. Our founding fathers uh, had, the, had the principles of the Word of God through the preaching of, of, of Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield. And when we formed our Declaration of Independence, John Adams, or, uh, John Adams asked Thomas Jefferson to, to do the draft for our Declaration of Independence. And when Thomas Jefferson did it, he brought it back to Adams and he looked at it. And Adams said, this won't work. You only have one reference to God in this. We as a nation can never forget where we came from. Let me tell you something. Every one of our founding fathers and everybody came over had lost somebody to the persecution of that strange woman in the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. They knew what God had done for them. And for John Adams to look at that thing and say, this isn't going to work. We got to have more references as a nation to God. So he gave it back. And when it came in its final form, it had four references to God. And yet, I don't think Thomas Jefferson was a saved man. But divinely, God had him put in, those, in, in, our, in, in our Declaration of Independence uh, uh, the four great aspects of God because there's one reference in our, in our Declaration of Independence as God as lawgiver. There's another reference in that thing as God as creator. There's another one in there as God as the supreme judge. And the fourth one is that God is our protector. Pretty good, well, I'd think, for a nation to follow those four things. We start our country, and even today they look back and they look at our founding fathers and what we believed. You know what they call it? They call it Judeo-Christianity. They understand that the Ten Commandments, that's why they have them in courthouses. Not anymore. 
But that's the first thing the courthouse did is put the Ten Commandments. They knew that this nation was founded on the very principle that God founded Israel. Now, you don't get that today. You're going to get Obamacare today, but you don't get that today. And when you look at it and you see it, it's an incredible thing. I mean, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, back in Jeremiah or back in, the, uh, uh, in, in Kings after Solomon dies, <coughs> Jeroboam and Rehoboam come to power. What happens? They split Israel north and south. And in 1860, in our own country, our country was split north and south. Incredible parallels. Absolutely incredible. Just incredible. But tragically, in both cases, both of them forsake the calling of God and and left the path of God and both go the way of the evil man and the strange woman. Both dump God's, the word of God and yet both profess the form of Christianity. And we find today in this country exactly what you find in Israel. This country has a form of godliness. We talk about God, but this country despises the name Jesus Christ. Amen. You can't pray it anymore. You can't talk about it anymore. God is the great generic marshmallow in the sky. He can be anything. But you want to limit the conversation, you bring up Jesus Christ. And that's where you're at today. It's incredible. And both will face the wrath of God's chastisement for what they've done with the Word of God. And and I'll tell you something else that most people don't know. America is the most benign nation on this planet. I was listening on the news today, the big news. You know what the big news is today? That we worked a deal with Iran. Just last night, 3 o'clock in the morning, Kerry got over there with the, with the Hushima Hashimahini over there in Iran and, and worked out a deal that, uh, that uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let them go ahead and enrich uranium, but they promised us they're not going to do a weapon. Oh, well, am I going to sleep good tonight? This world is nuts. You know why I put no faith in the world? Some of you ought to learn what I'm about to say. You know why I put no faith in this world in any way, shape, or form? I'm 63 years old, and I can guarantee you one thing I've learned, along with a lot of other things that I've learned. The reason why I care nothing for this world, will never go back to this world, won't even dibble-dabble in this world, is something you ought ought to learn. I won't do it because there wasn't one time the world ever kept the promise it made me. Where never one time God ever broke one he made me. See, it's a problem for you and a problem for me and a problem for me. And they're over there now. The president was on a thing this morning. Oh, what a great day this is. We got a deal struck, man. Yeah, you got a deal struck. Right. We're so naive and so stupid to the fact that we we don't even see what's going on around us. And I want to let you to know, for your own good, That's part of God's chastisement of America. Most people don't know and understand, and the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 5, and no truer verse fits anywhere other than the world that we live in, that evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Obama doesn't get it. Kerry doesn't get it. Joe Biden doesn't get it. Nobody in Congress or the Senate gets it. Most politicians never get it, but I get it because I got a book. And that book says that God's going to judge nations. 9-11 was the beginning of the... And boy, when you say that, boy, I mean, they come out of the woodwork after you. 
You know why? They don't understand. All down through history, God has used nations to judge his nations. In the Old Testament, it was the Hittites. It was the Canaanites. It was the Moabites. It was the Assyrians. It was the Babylonians. It was nations. It was nations. And in the New Testament, it's going to be the same nation. Now they're just under Islam. But we're going to get it. Enjoy it. You had to change that little song that they all sing, this is the day the Lord hath made, and let us be glad and rejoice till this is the day the Lord hath made. You're going to get it in the neck. If you think God's going to allow a nation like America to escape what he would not allow all the other nations to escape, you're crazy. You're crazy. And because we live here and we have so much affluence and we have all that we have and we have this and that and we have great this and great that and we have all the things that we could ever want, we have been lulled asleep to the fact that there's an evil man out there and a strange woman out there and she has taken our Bible from us and we're going to pay the price for it as a nation. Now the third one will be the churches that once held the Word of God but no longer do. In particular, the Laodicean church period that we're in. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but we're called a cult. I'm a cult leader. If you're a visitor here today, you're in great company. You're in a cult. We've got Kool-Aid out there. We want you to drink on your way out. (laughs) I've heard all kinds of, I've heard all kinds of definitions of, of what a cult is. Uh, you know, and most of it's bogus, and most of it is ridiculously stupid, and I, it's very obvious they don't know what a cult is. The easiest way to recognize a cult when you see it is a cult will always tell you what, you th- what you're supposed to think. A real Bible-believing ministry will just try to get you to think with the principles of the Word of God. But you know what our great crime against humanity is, that we're cults? Because we simply believe that God wrote a book that's perfect. That's why. Imagine that. Now, the truth be known, and these people couldn't pick up truth. I've never seen, and I don't like the word stupid. I've never called my kids stupid. Never called my wife stupid. I don't call anybody stupid. Uh, but I'm, I have to change my terminology a little bit because I can't find another word for the stupidity that I see all around me today. And I'm telling you, people are stupid. People embrace stupidity. I know. I've seen people who embrace, embrace stupidity like it's a virtue. 150 years ago, everybody believed what we believed. It didn't matter if you were a Methodist. It didn't matter if you were a Lutheran. It didn't matter what you were. Everybody believed what we believe today. We haven't changed. I, I love it. Over the years, you know, people, people get mad at God and are getting into sin in their life and they leave the church and they got to have somebody to blame it on. So they'll always say, I love this. They'll always say this. Well, Bob just doesn't preach like he used to preach. And if I do preach like I used to preach, then it, well, he's just gotten worse and he just preaches. That's all he does is just yell and scream. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to tell you. You sitting there gives me something to yell and scream about. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but the fact is, you can go back and fa- thankfully, you know, I'm on record all the way back to probably 1970, all 76. And uh, you can get tapes of me back then. And you know what? I believe the same thing now I believe back then. I don't preach one thing different today. I may be a little smarter, hope so. But as far as my preaching is concerned, I haven't changed a bit. You changed, see? Once you liked it, now you don't like it. Once it meant something to you, now it doesn't. That's the way churches are. Once the Bible meant something to them, now it doesn't. Now they don't mean anything to them anymore. And uh, it's just the way it is. 
When you go back to Acts chapter 11 up to today, you'll find that there's, 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 there's some fundamental truths that the true church held to. And when it got into the Baptist realm of it, the, the Baptist church, they held to them, and we have them today as what we call Baptist distinctives. And I realize that most Baptist churches don't even know about it anymore, but the true line held seven distinct things that they believed, and the seventh thing was that this book was the Word of God. See? So we go all the way back to Antioch. I'm not sure where you go. I'm not sure where you're coming from or where you're going. But the evil man, this strange woman, did exactly with the church what he did with Israel as a nation. The evil man, this strange woman, came in and, and uh, you know, and right behind God and did his work. And the Ahath God said crowd has come in and taken the word of God right out of the churches today. I mean, when you go back and you look at the end, at the end of the Philadelphian church age, around 1900 in America, there's three Baptist groups. The largest is a Southern Baptist Convention. There's another group that is it's not quite as large. It is called the GRB, General Association of Baptists. And then there's the American Baptists that are smaller yet. Those were the only three Baptist church groups you had in 1900. The only three groups. There was no churches like ours. Those were the only three you had in America. And, uh, you know, around the same period of time, the devil doing his work, he brought in the concept of neo-orthodoxy and, and uh, what we call neo-evangelicalism. Neo meaning new, a new orthodoxy, orthodoxy being the truth, evangelicalism being that we're going to be evangelical, we're going to evangelize, but it's new now, see? And a new orthodoxy came out and it, it basically said, bring the Bible down to man's level, don't let man come up to the Bible standard. Bring the Bible down. That's why you find people who embrace that today, they, there's no sin. The gays and the lesbians can come in. We can be women pastors. We can have, we can have gay uh, preachers. We can have this or that. We can have lesbians be bishops. We can have women be deacons. What they've done is, is neo-orthodoxy does away with everything that is right and wrong and brings the Bible down that Whoever you are, whatever your lifestyle is, whatever you like to do that goes against the Bible, now it's okay. And we'll bring the Bible to you. And that's what you find in these churches today. The other one was neo-evangelicalism. Neo-evangelicalism had one purpose. It was to take the Bible out of the common man and put it back in the realm of scholarship. It had one fundamental goal. That was take the common Bible out of the hand of the common man and put it back in scholarship where you couldn't get it unless going through scholarship. And it worked. And most Baptist churches today, most Baptist churches today are a blend of the two. A blend of the two. While the American Baptists are so screwed up today that there's a one down in Florida where you walk in there, there's a statue of Jesus Christ, a statue of Buddha, a statue of Confucius. Take your pick in a Baptist church, American Baptist. So we started back in 1900 to go into great apostasy. The Southern Baptist big stick was their, their seminary down in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, and it still is today. And by the 1920s, this had done such a damaging thing to them that they're teaching in their Bible college, in their seminary. They're teaching that the Bible is fables. They're teaching that Adam and Eve was not a true story, that Noah's flood never happened, that Christ's resurrection never happened, and they're actually in their Bible colleges teaching the evolution that Darwin taught. And they turned out probably 30 generations, maybe 40 generations of preachers 
that went out and started churches that believed nothing about the Bible. And it destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention. It got it so bad that there was a great split a number of years ago, and there was a fundamental group that kind of distanced themselves, but they're all in a mess. Now, how did we get where we're at, you see? God's judgment on those churches back there was very apparent. We got where we're at because of one guy. And the tragedy is that most of God's people don't even know who he is. And when they hear his name, don't know anything about him. And his name was J. Frank Norris, commonly called the Texas Tornado. J. Frank Norris was born around 1877. He died in 1952. When he came into the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in around the 1900s, uh, he was a their fair-haired boy. <coughs> he had great potential, great preacher. But he saw what was going on and he saw what was happening and God reached down over the banisters to heaven and got a hold of old J. Frank Norris and I'll tell you what, that boy split and tore that thing apart. I mean the modern day fundamentalist movement the reason we have a King James Bible today, the reason why we have what we have today is because of one man who would not stand for the apostasy that was going on and broke with them. And brother, he paid the price upon price upon price for you and me to have that book. There's places you go in Texas today, you are around Christianity, you say his name, they'll shoot you. They hate him. I mean, he preserved the last remnant of the true Bible believers and 99.9999% of the saved, born again people today don't even know who he was or what he did. They have no understanding. I'll tell you what he did. He took on the whole system. I'll tell you what he did. He single-handedly broke the back of the Southern Baptist Convention. To this day, they, they never have recovered from the nuclear impact of J. Frank Norris. And they hate him today. You know why they did? They hate him so much today and hate him so terribly today. He simply took God's side over the fight in the Bible. That's all he did. All he did. Now, the fourth one moving through here will be you and me as God's son. Christians. Now, let's read our text today in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now that we've had a a good introduction here. It says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today. Pray you'll take this verse and help us to go here from today and, and better understand where we're at with you. We do love you. We thank you for all you do for us. And Father, we just ask you now in a very special way, to give us what we need today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Now, every parent that has children should understand what I'm about to say today. You want your kids to do right. I, I never met a parent that grew up wanting their kids to do wrong. But you want your kids to do right, and you put things in their world that will help them. But you know as well as I do, when they don't do right, there's consequences. And those consequences come in two forms. Sometimes it's a mild form of correction. Sometimes it's a harsher concept of chastisement. 
And you have to deal with them on different levels. Each situation is different. There's things that your child would do that you would just deal with them in one way, and then there's things on a different level that they would do that you've got to be more severe in the way you deal with them. Well, God's the exact same way. You see, the Bible forms the model on disciplining your children. Now, I know today, and I say this totally understanding, it's none of my business how you raise your children. I say that going in. It's certainly not. None of my business how you raise your kids. Many parents today forsake the biblical model. They fall into the category of doing it and training up their children or raising up their children by being wise in their own eyes and leaning to their own understanding and not the model God gave you. None of my business. I totally understand that. But I want to say this to you. But in spite of your own understanding and your own eyes, I want to tell you something. There is nowhere on this planet a better plan than God's plan. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And I will tell you something else. I guarantee you this. The insistence on doing it your way with your children and not following the Bible model will not be limited to just your kids. In all of my years, I have never seen where it it was one and not the whole thing. It will be in every area of your life. It always is. It'll be your way over God's way by leaning on your own understanding and being wise in your own eyes. I've never seen it where a person just had it in dealing with their kids and it didn't infect every other part of their life. It just doesn't work that way. Now, without a doubt, the greatest single passage that that shows us the concept of God's correction and God's chastisement in our lives is found in the book of Hebrews. And I want us to turn over there to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want us to look at verses 5 through 11. And here we find seven great principles in this passage to get down, and it's dealing with God's chastisement and correction in our life. And we want to look at them. Now let's read it. And this goes right along with Proverbs chapter 3. Now Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, starting out, says this, Ye have forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have... We have, uh, fought, we, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, verily for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit, of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Now, verse 5 says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now, that is so true. I think that becomes one of the main issues that God's people either never learn or if they do learn it, they don't maintain it. And that is the fact that uh, we gave gave it to you last week. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we lose that. We, we, we don't get it instilled in us. 
And you know when parents, your earthly parents, we're going to make a lot of parallels here. You as an earthly parent, when you don't instill in your children and keep before them and keep reminding them there's things they can't do, there's limitations they got to follow, there's rules that you have to give them. When you don't do that, you know it becomes a problem. And when God's people don't do that, because why? I mean, God's not going to come down and tap you on the shoulder and whisper in your ear. He expects you to go to church. He expects you to go to a Bible-believing church where the guy will tell you what you need to know. He expects you to get into the Bible. Let's show, money, show you how to take the Bible apart, put it back together again. He expects you to get where you need to get that somebody can instruct you so you don't forget that you're not just going to live your life as a Christian and get away with it without some consequences. Now, let me show you something here. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those are two different things. I've been asked many times over the years if that's a contradiction in your Bible. And, of course, we know there's no contradictions in the Bible. I've been asked many times to reconcile those two. And as you just look at the two verses, you know, it might be hard to reconcile them. But when you take those two verses and put them into the whole context of the book, it's not hard at all. Because we know that the book of Proverbs is the process of spiritual growth. And the first thing you need to know as a child of God, is there some things you won't get away with? So the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Or the, uh, the beginning of uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He says, and when you understand that, it means the first thing you do when you get saved is you understand that you have knowledge that you're not going to get away with whatever you do. But as you grow, as you get to the point of your life where you grow spiritually. Now you have wisdom in God's chastisement. Now you understand that that's where you start. You start in chapter 1, verse 7 with knowledge. But one day you grow to the place that you understand that you now have wisdom. It's not just, it's not just, it's not just knowing that God is going to chastise you. It's understanding why God is going to chastise you. You get wisdom in it. Now, you know it's true. It's true in every aspect of your life and my life. And you'll get, and there's some things you'll get away with just, uh, and, and, and just like you'll train your kids. You, you, you're not some things you're not going to get away with. Then as they grow and mature and you tell them, you can't do this. I'm giving you knowledge. Here's all your parameters. As your kids grow and mature, your kids, and then as you, as a Christian, grow and mature, as God's son, you get wisdom. Now you not only know that you won't get away with it, now you have wisdom and know why you won't get away with it. That's very important. Now most Christians never can get to part two because they forget or they never get part one. The process of growing from having knowledge about God's correction and chastisement to the point where you now have wisdom about God's correction and chastisement is a spiritual growth process. Now look at... Look at at verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what he says. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, I told you to go hand in hand. It says there, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. They're together. You see, when you don't grow properly, 
and when God has to come down and deal with you, well, you know what happens? If you, don't, if you just know that God's going to whack you and you don't understand the whole process of why he whacks you, if you just know mom and dad are going to clobber you kids, but you don't understand the full force of why they're going to clobber you, you know what happens every time? You get an attitude about it. Amen. You get an attitude about it. Amen. Your children come to the point where they, they'll sass you back. They won't listen to you. They get an attitude about it. And we as God's people, when we don't understand why God's hand is in our life to correct us and sometimes chasten us, when we don't understand the process of growing through that point of not just knowing but, but having the wisdom about it, then we begin to despise the chastening of the Lord. And you do that when you don't grow properly. This is why people quit going to church. This is why they quit out of their Bible. God comes down and deals with them. And they get an attitude against God. They get mad at God, just like your kids get mad at you. They won't listen to God, just like your kids won't listen to you. So what they do is they quit going to church. They blame God for it. They get mad at God. God comes down and corrects them, tries to chastise them, deal with them because they don't have wisdom in why God is doing what he's doing. They never grew to that part. They got knowledge, but they don't have the wisdom and understanding of why God's doing what he's doing. And kids with their parents go through the same thing because their parents never explain it to them. They never get it to them. Now, let me say something to you young parents about the number one thing in training your kids. And this is very important this morning. The key to a strong family is simply two things. Only two in a biblical format. But training up your children, and we've got a lot of young parents here that have a lot of new babies and a lot of little children. And I'm going to tell you, the key to a strong family is simply two things. It's them coming to the point where they understand. They have wisdom about correction chastisement it's not just a fact do you correct them it's how you have trained them to respond to that correction or chastisement it's not the fact that you just whip them chastise them correct them it's the fact that how you do it how you've trained them how they respond to that and it's the same way with you and me as God's son I know God's going to come down and whack me if I don't do what's right. I got two choices. When he does, I can get mad at him. I can say, you're unjust. Look at so-and-so over here. You didn't do anything to him. He got a new car out of it, and I got whacked. Or you can look at it with the wisdom and saying, you know what, Lord, I know why you did it to me. And that's where your kids got to get to. Your kids got to get to the point when you drop the hammer and you come down and deal with them on whatever level it is, they understand why you're doing it. And when they don't, they're going to get an attitude about it. Parenting is many things on many levels. But fundamentally, it brings your child from a knowledge about correction and chastisement to the wisdom of correction and chastisement. When a child, your child, my child, anybody's child, when they get 16, 17, 18, or 19 years old and they reject your correction and they get an attitude of indifference toward you, totally resist your leadership as a father and mother, there's some things you, at that point you better enact in your life to turn that thing around. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, most parents can't deal with this. They can't. 
They can't. And I've dealt with parents all my life. I've dealt with parents with all my, all my life whose kids were, were just terrible. And, and I'm not saying they were, they were terrible kids. They were just out in the world terrible kids. And I've seen some parents do what's right with them and hold the line, and I have the utmost respect for that. I've seen other parents do what most, most parents do. They move to Venus. Now, Venus is a neat planet. Venus is closer to the sun than we are. There's a lot of sulfuric acid in the atmosphere of Venus. It's a lot hotter there than it is here. And it tends to make people crazy. And on Venus, it's never a problem to blame your problems on somebody else. On Venus, it's the way they do things. The Venetians. It's what they do. On Venus, there's never one guy on Venus, the Venetians, who ever, ever took responsibility for his problem. It's always somebody else's fault. So when parents don't want to take responsibility and the kids don't want to take it, they move to Venus. If they have to have the money for a trip to Venus, they move out west to the big rock candy mountain. It's the big mountain made out of candy. And we know what candy does. Puts too much sugar in your kids. So it couldn't be your kid's fault. It's all the sugar they eat. So you can go to Venus and it's never your problem. Or you can go to Big Rock Candy Mountain and it's never your kid's problem. And if you can't get there, right across the border, Kansas, Oz. In the land of Oz, it is never anybody's problem. It wasn't Dorothy's problem. It wasn't the tin man. It wasn't the, it wasn't the wolf man. It wasn't the, whatever he was. It, it, it wasn't any of those. It was the wicked witch of the West and the little munchkins. Remember? Oh, ee, oh, oh, oh. Those guys. When you won't take responsibility for it, then that's where, that's where you wind up. No, no, no. We have simply failed in a fundamental key aspect of children. Teaching them to love and to respect the hand of correction and chastisement in their life as, your, as, you, as a parent and your children. There's a very clear process to it in the Bible. And I don't care where they get in life, there's always a process biblically to counter it. But then here's where it goes. And, you know, and, I, and, I, and I've told people, i told people all the time. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I, I, I told uh, several people, I said, you know what? We're going to lose some families in the next couple of years because where this thing is going, I'm going to tell you that, you know, you can hide your kids for a while. And you can say, well, they're not in church today because they're sick or they're hearing that. But, I mean, you can only get away with it for a while. I mean, you can only keep it under the rug for a while. And, you know, if you never clean your house and you don't vacuum and you just keep sweeping the rug, the dirt under the rug, after about 10 or 15, 20 years, you're going to break your neck over that rug. And you know what? You can only get away with it for a while. You can only get away with it for a short period of time. And then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then, I, I tell you, because they reject your authority and have absolutely no respect for you or your rules, and they're out of control, they're doing their own thing. How in the world, how in the world do you expect me to fix your problem? If they don't, the reason they don't respect your rule of authority is basically and fundamentally the reason why they're not going to 
respect God's fundamental rule of authority. They have no more respect for the biblical principles than they do for yours. And it comes back to a fundamental issue, raising up your children, raising up your children in a concept that they not only know they're going to get the hand of correction, but they understand why. And that's true in your life and my life of never getting a bad attitude toward God. He says, despise not the chastening of the Lord. And you know how you do that? By understanding why he chastens us. Let's move on here and look at it. The flaw, the flaw here is, was, and will be in the fundamental structure of parenting. Now, I I, got to tell you this. There's no perfect parent. I have certainly made my mistakes in parenting, and, and, and no, there's no perfect parent. And there certainly isn't any perfect kids. There just isn't. I mean, it, it's just the bottom line. But the key to it is not perfection. Because if perfection was the key, then we'd never have any problems. The key is not perfection. The con- key is a consistency of solid biblical structure and the process of bringing them from knowing about God's chastisement to the wisdom about God's correction and chastisement. You have to do with your child what God does with us. It's the model. That's your model. God takes you when you first get saved, you come to church, you get into the Bible, you get discipled, you get lined up with somebody a little bit older than you in the Lord, and the process begins where God teaches you first that there's some things you can't do. And if you try to do them, there's going to be a price to pay for it. But then you learn as you grow why that is. And when you understand why that is, and you really are truly saved and you love the Lord, it's never a problem when he does. Verse 6 and 7 says, now watch what he says next. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastisement, there it is, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Now, that's a great comforting verse to me because you know what? It isn't just targeted at me. We're all going to get it. Nobody here that's saved is going to escape God's correction or God's chastisement. We're all going to get it. But see, the thing is this. You can't endure it if you don't understand it. You can't get through it and endure it if you don't have wisdom about it. And there's two great things you need to do in your life. You need to get yourself to that point as a Christian, then you need to get your children to that point as a Christian. Getting to the place in your Christian life that you learn to enjoy your enduring. Getting to the place in your Christian life that you, we're all happy about God's love. We love it when God loves us. That nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. We all enjoy it when, when, God, when God loves us, wraps his arm around us, and we read nice fuzzy passages about that. But you ought to feel the same exact way about God's correction and God's chastisement. You ought to love God through it all. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7, one of the greatest verses in the Bible on it. He says, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. See that thing? Now, the full soul is somebody that's full of themselves full of the world, full of all the things that the world has to offer. They loathe, that's to despise, the honeycomb, word of God. But to the hungry soul, but the hungry soul, he says, every bitter thing is sweet. 
Not just some of the things. Not just the ones you like. Not just the ones that make you feel good. Not just the ones that edify you. But when he comes down and whacks you, every bitter thing is sweet. Is that your attitude today? Is that your kid's attitude? I mean, that's, that's where you got to get to. Get into the place in your life where you learn to enjoy the hand of God's correction in your life because you have wisdom about it. When you enact that process of biblical correction and chastisement and you bring that child from the knowledge about God dealing with them to wisdom about God dealing with them and as you're dealing with them as the father or the mother early on in their life and when they hit 18 or 19 and 20 and you have to drop the hammer, they respect it and follow it because they understand it. And even when they don't initially follow it, it'll always be the thing that'll bring them back. You see, your basis is, I'm responsible for you before God. I'm going to give an account to you, for God, to God for you as, your fa- my, as the father of you, my child. And I'm not going to let you do that. And you fail to do that, to bring them to that point in your life, you're going to have some problems. Now the fourth thing. Verse 8, but if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Now we know a bastard is a, as an illegitimate child, someone who has no father, uh, not really a, a, you know, it was born out of wedlock and the father never took responsibility for it and, uh, and not sons. In this case, it's talking about somebody who is not really saved. Now, this is a very serious problem today, and it is, again, it's a result of the evil man and the strange woman. You remember back in our study on 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it said Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the difference between God's chastisement and God's judgment, God chastises his children. He judges unsaved people in this life. And, and you know my take on it. I mean, I, I've been talked about it many, many times. It's, it's one of the things that, that I absolutely, um, I, I see it all around me. And uh, it's, 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 it's the price that you will pay for spending so much time in the Bible. The Bible gives you the ability not only to see what's right, but it will give you the ability to see what's phony. And I, I've said it many before. I, I certainly, I, I basically don't think that most Christians that claim to be Christians are really Christians. I, I don't know how you can get saved without the Word of God. I just don't know how you can do that. Uh, maybe you can. Maybe you, you know, I mean, I mean, if you can get saved without understanding the truth, then I guess you can. Personally, I don't think you can. And I certainly don't understand, you know, I, and I see it all the time. I, all my whole life's been filled with parents whose kids are just as worldly and, and, and just don't care one thing about God. They don't care one thing about the Bible. don't care one thing about church. And the parents just insist. They just insist all day long. I mean, instead of dealing with the issue and trying to save their soul before it's too late, they move to Venus. And it's always somebody else's fault. And when that kid dies and splits hells wide open, when you had a chance to reach him or her or it, whatever the case may be, and you failed to do it. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And I've told you before, you know, you can't have salvation. You can't have a relationship with God without having repentance. And I know the lame excuse, repentance is turning from sin. No, repentance is more than that. Repentance is five things, man. 
And, you know, repentance is a broken spirit. Repentance is a, is a, is a contrite heart. Repentance is a humbleness. Repentance is, a, is, a, is the right spirit. And repentance is a, is a restitution. It's a, it's a thing where it's more than just turning. It's an inside thing. And you just, when you see somebody that just, you know, you, you talk to them and you talk to them and you talk to them. And there's no, there's no remorse. There's no contrite heart. There's no spirit. There's nothing that's broken about it. It just goes on and on and on and on. You know what they say. When nothing ever changes, it's because nothing ever has changed. A great example is this one who's in Ohio. I, my, uh, my brother-in-law uh, is, a, is a Lutheran, lost as a goose. <clears throat> and... Uh, I had come back from somewhere, I forget where I was, and I came in and I come upstairs and they were, this was after the funeral, and they were having a religious discussion. Uh, it, was, it was him, his wife, and his, his, his daughter and his boy, and Danny was sitting over in a chair. And, uh, and they were, and I, I guess the issue started because my brother-in-law brought up the fact of infant baptism. And, uh, and I sat there, and I didn't say anything because Danny was dismantling him. I mean, Danny has a way of just taking the sides off your sheets and, 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 and ripping you apart, and, and you say, well, thank you very much. That was the nicest thing I went through. <laughs> I mean, me, I don't, I just, you know, I, I talked to him 30 years ago, man. I just, I mean, I, mean, I remember one time he asked me to go to a, 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 an Easter breakfast they had, sunrise breakfast, and it was one of those lamest things I've ever been to in my life. And uh, the pastor, if he wasn't queer, he was missing the best chance he had all week. I ain't kidding. <laughs> so we're sitting around this table, man, and we're around this table, and it's the goofiest stuff. I thought we were going for breakfast. There was a big plate, a big China dinner plate, with four little pieces of corn. Now, not ears of corn, four little pieces of corn. No, I'm trying to share. I know where you're coming from, Sharon. And, and I'm looking at they did the same thing, you know. Uh, and and in the, in, the, in the spiritual lesson was, this is all the pilgrims had when they had their first Thanksgiving. So we're going to have that too. I'm thinking to myself, where are the Indians? I'm going to trade them some six guns and some shotguns and get some turkeys or something like that. And they're sitting down, and he says, now here's what we're going to do. Everybody take a piece of paper and write on what you're thankful for today, and we're going to pass it around, and we're going to put it in, and, and I'll read them. Well, you know where this is going, and I'm sitting there, you know, and, and I wrote mine down, and he put it in there, and, and he started opening them up, and he says, no names on them, and he says, I want to thank God for butterflies. I want to thank God for sunshine. I want to thank God for my family. I can get along without them. I want to thank God for, for, for whatever. And then the other one says, I want to thank God for the blood of Jesus' Son, God, blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son that cleanses us from all sin. Through that, that was mine. <laughs> the lamest thing you ever saw in your life, man. And that's where these guys are. And they were up there, and Danny was just, and Danny kept taking him back to the Bible. Finally, he says, and this is what he said. He said, you know what? He says, we, agree, we believe, we, we agree on everything we've talked about except just one little thing. And he says, I'm happy today that we can agree on everything else. And the only thing we're at odds are is on the concept of infant baptism. And I thought to myself, yeah, that one little thing that we're against is going to send you to hell faster than a board. And I'm telling you, I sat there and I thought to myself, here is a guy who keeps taking him back to the Bible. 
Danny wasn't giving him his opinion. Dan was kept bringing it back and saying, well, you know what, infant baptism, there is no place in the Bible where any infant was ever baptized. Didn't bother him. There's no place in the Bible where anybody's ever baptized for salvation. Didn't bother him. He had gotten to the place as a lost man where so many Christians get to as a saved person. You just don't care what the Bible says. You're going to believe what you want to believe. You're going to do what you want to do, whether it's in your life, the life of your children, or raising your family, or you're in your job, or whatever you do. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. And we've come to that where now people claim to be saved, claim to be a Christian. If you would, if you would say, well, you're not a Christian, he would have had a heart attack. He would have went off all over the place. Because in his mind, a Christian is exactly what he thinks a Christian should be. Nothing to do with the Bible. And that's where we're at today. And that's exactly what we got here. It's exactly where we're at today. And we, we come to the point where we say we're Christians. I see it all around. I see people say, oh, he's a Christian. Oh, she's a Christian. They live like hell. They don't do anything for God. They don't give anything about God. No time, no place. They care nothing about it. It's all about them. And we actually, because we live on Venus, we actually think they're saved. And the time that we have that we ought to be drilling into them to try to get them saved, taking off the mask, not allowing them to play the game anymore, we just, big rock candy mountain, boy, that's nice. Boy, Oz is really nice. And one of these days, they're going to wind up and split hell wide open, all because you had your head stuck in the sand and you wasn't willing to deal with the aspect the way it really was. People amaze me today. Well, look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh. There's your mom and daddy, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Sure you did. You know why? Because dad take you to the woodshed. You know why you, you gave him reverence? Because you knew you were going to get clobbered. You know how many times the, the famous words your mother said struck fear to all our hearts? Where do your dad get home? <laughs> Shall we not much be in, in, in subjection under the father of spirits and live? Now, there's a number of things here. First of all, the father of spirits. I've been asked many, many times, you know, when you get back there in, in, in Saul, where the Bible says that Saul got an evil spirit from the Lord. People think that's a terrible thing. How can the Lord give an evil spirit? And the answer is right here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. He's the father of all spirits, good and bad. No spirit does anything without God's permission. So you've got to understand in that text. Then he says, uh, the model for your kids is God dealing with you. Matthew 7, 11, if you be evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto them that ask him? The model for your kids is God's model of dealing with you and me. And for, for that to first work in your life, there has to be a real relationship with God between me and him. And the key word here is subjection. This is the word subjection. One of the greatest study words in the Bible. If you're in subjection to God in all things, then your kids will be to you. And when you're not, God's, you know, God's chastise, God, and God chastises us, and you know, we, He gets us back in line. And when your kids get out of line, you have to drop the hammer and get them back in line. It's the model that you use. The model that you use. First Corinthians nine twenty seven says that we're to keep our body under subjection. See, there's some things you can't do with your body once you get saved. 2 Corinthians 9.13 says that we profess subjection under the gospel. You're supposed to subject yourself to the gospel. 
1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 5 says, Wives to be in subjection to your husband. That's the biblical model. When it comes to pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Three of the greatest words that help you understand what he's talking about. First thing he says, rule well. You have to have some rules in your family. You have to have some rules. Second thing he says, he says, in subjection. It doesn't mean that they won't, you won't have issues with them. It means that when you do have issues with them because your family is in subjection, it doesn't mean they're always going to be perfect. It means when they step out of line, then you subject them to correction or chastisement. And then he says, with all gravity. That's not what goes up must come down. That is the gravity of the situation, understanding it. This is the most single important thing, and not only in your life and my life as a child of God, to get from that point where we understand about it, but we get to the point uh, that we, we know it, but we get to the point that we have wisdom about it. You better take it seriously, for it's the number one issue. Now, the sixth thing. For they, your parents, earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Now, let me explain that. That doesn't mean that uh, the word pleasure there is an old English phrase, and it doesn't mean that they took pleasure in whipping you, though some parents probably did. And uh, it simply means that uh, parents make their kids do right, not always based on, on the Bible, just because they want their kid to do right. You see it all the time. I've seen, unsaved, I've seen unsaved people discipline their kids better than a lot of saved people. But you see, in other words, there's no biblical process to it. They just do right with them in a worldly sense. But then he goes on, but he, God, for our profit. And, and see, there's profit. And this is why you want to have wisdom about it. Isn't God just coming down and whacking you because he's had a bad day? God has a profit out of it for you and for me. God wants you to make a profit for him. He wants you to do something as a return for what he did for you that we might be partakers of his holiness. See, in your personal life, being close to God in your family, the unbroken chain of ministry we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or the broken family without ministry. It's either going to be one of the two. Now the seventh and the last thing, verse 11. Now here's where we put it all together. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of the righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, no truer words were ever spoken. It's true of dealing with your kids, and it's certainly true of God dealing with us. When you have to deal with your children or God has to deal with you or me, there's certainly pain. It doesn't, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. There's pain, there's heartache, there's tears, there's trauma, and there's a lot of drama in dealing with the issue. And most parents can't do it. They can't do it because they're weak themselves. You see, most parents can never get past the pain of dealing with it, so they never get the gain by dealing with it. You know it as well as I do. See it on the bodybuilders all the time, on their T-shirts. No pain, no gain. Well, when God deals with you or we have to deal with our family, there's no gain unless you go through the pain. You won't grow up to be the man God wants you to be or the woman God wants you to be if your parents hasn't disciplined you to the place where they bring you uh, in under subjection to their rules. 
And you'll never be the man or the woman God wants you to be till you allow God to do that same thing in your life and you endure it. And you don't just know you're going to get whacked. You have wisdom about it. And that wisdom makes you susceptible that you love God for doing it. Now, this underscores what I, I just said a little, minute, a little while ago, the process of getting knowledge about God's chastisement and correction and the process of getting God's wisdom on it. Now, he says, no chastisement for the present while you're going through it. Seemeth to be joyous but grievous. You know, I, 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 I followed the biblical model in, 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 train, in training up my kids and when they were five or six, seven years old. And, you know, and the, the whole process is in the Bible. You don't spank your kid for everything. There has to be certain things that you spank them for on different levels. But when I had to spank them, it was not joyous for me in everywhere it changed form. The old adage, just hurts you more than it hurts me more than it does you, was certainly true with my kids. I, mean, I remember when they were six or seven years old, you know, and, and you take them into the bedroom, you know, and make them drop their pants, and you put their little bodies bottoms over, and that little bottom looks like two tasty loaf of bread, you know, and you got to whack them, you know, and they and they, they cry, and you you know, and you know, and you don't want to, and you think that I, I so you want to haul off a little bit and not do it, and pull back a little bit, and and but you know what comes in, you know what comes in, you know, at that moment the principles flood in that if you don't do it now, it's going to be problems down the line. You see, it says, now no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, in spite of that, afterward, afterward. And for a parent, that's when after what you would, you would chastise them if it came to that level. That's when you have a time with them. That's where you hold them, you love them. You reinforce all the things. You explain to them why you had to do what you did. That's where I would tell them, look, I love you more than anything on this planet, and I'm going to give an account to God someday for you. And so I can't let you do these things. I can't let you take that lamp and hit your sister in the head. I can't let you, you know, take the dog and, 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 and pull him by his tail. I can't let you put the canary in the microwave. I can't let you do those things. They have to understand. But you reinforce at that point, and that's what God does. There's not a time in my life that God didn't come down and whack me when I thought about it later and I was alone that God didn't come down and put his arms around me and say, you know, Bob, I only did that because I want the best for you. I only did that because I love you. And you know what, Bob, I'll tell you something. The day I don't come down and put my hand of correction in your life is the day you really got some problems. And that always made it okay with me. I'd rather have God come down and do whatever he's got to do in my life and know that he loves me than to God take his hand off me and say, you're on your own. But brother, that's the worst situation you can find yourself in. Now, he says, there's no joy in it, but there's profit in it. And with this, and without understanding it and having the wisdom, you'll never get what God's chastisement or his correction for you as a child is supposed to do. You'll never get it. You know, you'll just never get it in life. Verse 11 says, it, there's profit. It, it brings, it yieldeth. Now, that's a great word, yield. Like a tree, yielding fruit. He calls it peaceable fruit of unrighteousness. Peaceable fruit that, gets, that we yield in our lives. It's like the tree of life that bore, that yielded 12 manners of fruit. It's like the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit in the Galatians, that when you, when you yield yourself to God, you yield the fruit of God. And you can't do that when you're out there and God's not going to let you get away with it. He's going to, because he loves you, because he wants you. You saw it with Israel. 
In Matthew chapter 21, it, it, it tells the great historical perspective of Israel, how God did everything for them. He did this, he did that, he gave them prophets, he headed them about, he took care of them. And then he says in verse 34, when the time of the fruit drew near, God did all he did with Israel because he wanted Israel to bear fruit for him. And there was no fruit. And God does everything in your life. He gives you your job. He gives you your spouse. He gives you your kids. He gives you everything he gives you for one reason. Not that you can go to the Bahamas. Not you can go here. Not you can do this or you can buy this. Though that stuff's okay. The fundamental aspect is he wants you to bear fruit for him. Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, we're not there yet, but when we get to it, we'll talk about it. The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You see, it's a thing where fruit of righteousness, getting back on the path of righteousness, the path of uprightness, and getting to the place in your life and my life where we understand what God is doing with us. That when you first get saved, you realize and you have knowledge that there's some parameters in your life. You have a knowledge that there's some things God's not going to let you get away with. But then as you grow, it's not just that you have knowledge that God's going to come down and deal with me. You have wisdom to understand why. You know now that God has something that he wants you to do. You look at your own family and you look at how you correct your kids because you want them to turn out right. You don't want your kids to be down at turnaround. You don't want your kids to be down at restart. You don't want your kids to be homeless out there, somebody giving them hot dogs. You don't want that. You, most parents want their kids to have a better life than they had. Okay, God wants you to have as good a life as he had when he was on this earth. And you know how you're going to get your kid there? By instructing him and having him understand not just knowledge about why you have to come down and deal with them, but wisdom. And in that wisdom, they understand that you love them. In that wisdom, they understand that it's for their best. In that wisdom, they understand that you're doing it because God says, I want this child to grow up and be trained the right way. And when they don't do it, you've got to come down and deal with it. That model is based on my model that I have in my relationship with God. I know now. I've come a long way in 63 years. I've come a long way since I've been saved. I made about every mistake that a man could make, and I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. But through the process of that, I've come to the point that I understand, I realize, and I understand that the hand of God's judgment in my life, the hand of God's correction, the hand of God's chastisement will never be a bad thing in my life. It'll never be. Because I have more than knowledge about it. I have wisdom about it. I have understanding about it. I realize that he only wants the best for me, just like I wanted the best for my kids. And I realize that he will deal with me like I had to deal with them. And I love him for it. I'll say it again. The worst day in your life, friend, if you're truly a Christian, the worst day in your life will be the day God takes his hand off of you. Unfortunately, the reason why we see so many of God's people who claim to be God's people just going on in life never stops, never phases them, nothing ever happens to them. All that they get into and happens is just the consequences of a compounding of their sin. God never come down one time is because, as he said, they're bastards and not sons. They've never truly been saved, never truly been born again. And God's hand of correction or chastisement is never in their life. That's why parents can't get them to do anything. That's why there's no witness of the Holy Spirit of God. Or they tell you what you want to hear, they'll use you where they can, and then they go right back, as the Bible says, 
the dog to his vomit, and the sow to her wallow. That's what unsaved people do. And when you don't see it, I'll say it again, when nothing ever changes, because nothing ever has changed, and people just continue to do the same old things. Very smarter than the problem. But for you and for me, I want you to leave here today understanding we're all partakers of it. God's going to chastise us all at some point or the other. He's certainly going to correct us. When he does, love him more for it than you did before. Come out of it with the peaceable fruit. Realize that he's doing it simply because he loves you and he wants the best for you just like you want the best for your children. Every head bowed and every eye closed.